Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. We felt very strongly that if employees are helping build something great, that we owe them a part of that equity. It's often more important what you don't do than what you do do, because I would see very talented engineering teams go build something very sophisticated that the customer didn't want. The skills that you need to start something are different than the skills you need to scale something. If you want to go from zero to one and then also be the same person who takes the company from one to 10, you need to necessarily learn new skills. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Thanks for being here. You know, it's pretty interesting to me that this is the first time we've ever really sat down to chat. I think you were kind of intimidating. Me? You were your own. You're not one of the nicest people you know. You are very nice. Um, (laughs) And I'm not saying that to be facetious. (laughs) But I will tell the audience, the first proposal team that I was on that one, they had, I think, 50 subcontractors. and you had just submitted a proposal with no partners whatsoever on a proposal. (laughs) And then I had begged you. So we hadn't really had a conversation. We knew of each other. I came in. I begged you to be on my team. I said like every flattering thing (laughs) I could think of. And you said, one, I'm not sure I want to be, I don't even, not even sure I want that work. And number two, We'll probably just get added after it's awarded. <laughs> and so I walked away with my tail between my legs. But there's trade-offs, there's checks and balances. So Amit needed something later, and one of my partners ended up roping him into being on our proposal. And then during that proposal, you had to pull me aside and be like, WTF, this is a disaster. You need to get it together. And you said it very politely. Well, I do believe in being very candid with <laughs> other executives because yes. we don't have the time to sugarcoat and yeah. niceties. We have to be very direct with each other. I thought of it as an obligation to to be that way with you because you're spending real money, you know? Oh, my God. Yes. That proposal was like getting a master's degree, you know, something you... <laughs> And probably way more painful than actually getting a master's degree. Master's degree probably involves more positive experiences. But this was very, very difficult. We did very well. At the end of the day, you know, that's the hard thing about a proposal is you have people pre-grade it and basically tell you where it sucks. So hopefully you get that in before you submit and you have time to fix it and cram it. There was also a portion of it where... We had a compliance consultant and he basically said that our, I think it was maybe two days before, and he said we weren't even compliant in the management volume. 
Sure. Yep. Woof. So, unfortunately, with proposals, second place doesn't mean anything. No. And we lost on a technicality, which was that our key people were no longer available, mm. which is crap. For all of you government people, contracting officers listening, <laughs> I think they're changing this rule, but it is a right to work state. Mm-hmm. And when you don't even commit to your review timelines or award timelines, you can't reasonably expect small businesses to be able to afford to keep people or lure people. There's there's nothing reasonably really you can do to keep key people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that's hard for people to grasp is that for a small business to win their first prime, it's a multi-year effort. And that takes a lot of commitment, a lot of pain, sweat, and tears. And it's not easy to do. I'm not sure everyone appreciates how difficult it is to maintain staff and to maintain the infrastructure that you need to continue supporting a potential contract that you may or may not win. Let's start with your role today. What are you doing amidst <laughs> today? What is your job? So I am actually in a very fortunate position where as a former owner of one of the companies that was acquired by Arlington Capital and then merged into the Blue Halo platform, I kind of have some leeway on what I want to do. And as somebody who essentially ran a company for 13 years, there were things that I loved, which were things like interacting with the customers and, and the engineering teams. And there were things that I did not love, which were accounting and contracts and HR and security, all those things. So I'm in a very fortunate position where I've been able to shed the things that I did not like to do and focus on the things that I like to do. It's still in flux, but my pseudo official title is I'm the chief architect for the Intel sector of Blue Halo. That is a perfect job for you. Yeah, and it affords me a lot of great opportunities to learn about autonomous drones, satellite communications, hypersonic and ballistic missiles and interact with, spend more time with the customers. It's been pretty fantastic. How did this all start? Like, where'd you grow up and what do you think you were going to do when you were little? (laughs) I wish I could tell you a story where I had my whole life planned out, but the reality was that I didn't. I, I grew up in Southern Virginia and South of Richmond, which is basically where the South starts. I would have to say I had a fantastic childhood. Um, I grew up very middle class. My father was a professor of statistics at a university called Virginia State. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had great friends growing up. I was fortunate enough to get admitted into the University of Virginia, which was my dream school for the wrong reasons, because I loved their basketball team, not because I cared about academics at all. My dad actually did not want me to go there because I had a full ride to Old Dominion University in their engineering program, but I was hell-bent on going to UVA. So I did, and it was a fantastic four years. I really loved being in Charlottesville, being at UVA, the school spirit. Everything was awesome. When you went to UVA, you majored in what? I majored in electrical engineering. And you had to declare that going in, right? I had to declare it the first semester. How did you know that you wanted to be an electrical engineer? I didn't. 
my RA, my resident advisor, was an electrical engineer, and he had built a amplifier for his guitar. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was really cool, and so I declared electrical engineering as my major. So it was kind of by accident, to be honest. And then as I was going through the program, I um, I specialized in robotics, which was a lot of fun. But when I was graduating. All the hardcore electrical engineering jobs were in non-metropolitan areas. And I really wanted to live in a city because I had never done that growing up. Particularly, I wanted to be in the D.C. area just because for a variety of reasons. Instead of going a hardcore electrical engineering job, I ended up joining as a NASA contractor over at Goddard Space Flight Center. I was very fortunate to work on the space shuttle, I was working on shuttle payloads, and I was able to um, reverse engineer these multi-million dollar systems on to these PCs that were a couple thousand dollars and got to meet astronauts and all that sort of stuff. It was a lot of fun. I think we're like the very few people up at Fort Meade, Maryland, went to UVA. Yes, we are a rare breed. (laughs) And we are outnumbered by Virginia Tech students, I'm sure, in the Fort Meade area. So we are the rare. And I think we went to school at the exact same time. You were the year above me. So new dorms or old dorms? I was old dorms. I was Dabney. I was Humphreys, right in the middle. It was so annoying. They always gave a tour, like, right outside my window. Oh, yeah. They used to do that in front of Dabney as well. And we used to play all these pranks on the tours (laughs) where we'd stuff, like, jeans and shirts with, like, newspaper and then throw them out of the third floor window in front of the tour. Like we had a couple of conversations with administration about those (laughs) (laughs) those antics that we used to pull. Did you end up sticking with your Dabney crew through college? Was that who you roomed with afterwards too? Yeah. Yeah. We were best men at each other's weddings and lived together post-college. We, you know, we're still like Facebook friends and those sort of things. So yeah. Did you feel pressured to major in engineering? Like, I know you declared after your first semester, but did you feel pressure? I mean, your dad was statistics. He wanted me to major in math and thought that engineering was going to be too easy. I really didn't have the same passion for math that my dad did. And my mom wanted me to be a doctor. So I was a disappointment for both of them. And (laughs) still am, I'm sure. But uh, I kind of went my own way. That's a story of your life, huh? Yes. I mean, <laughs> even the day that we uh, closed with Blue Halo, which was, you know, quite a significant day in my life. I was on a conference call with my sister's family and my parents and we're t- I'm telling them what's going on. My nieces are initially like very concerned, like, oh, you don't have a job anymore? I'm like, no, you know, I'm OK. Don't worry about it. And the only thing my mom can say is, so does this mean you can finally get your uh, master's degree? <laughs> I was like, don't worry, mom. I'll work on that master's degree at some point. So. You never got a master's degree. I started at Hopkins, but did not finish. I did all the coursework, but did not finish my thesis. Oh, really? I told my mom that I might not get a master's, and she lost her mind. I used to think I was going to get an MBA, but that seems like a negative now in engineering. So I think I did it just for my mom because she totally flipped out on me. Well, to this day, me and my dad argue about what a big failure I am for not getting a PhD. So, in <laughs> mind, uh, I'm still an uh, uneducated 
goon. So, How is it that you end up going from NASA to intelligence systems? As cool as working for NASA was, it was very slow. The world of human spaceflight is very slow. You know, my first three months there, I was only allowed to write six lines of code, and it drove me nuts. Eventually, I switched over to a contractor that was serving the NRO, back when the NRO was still a black agency and you couldn't say that you worked for them. And so that was my foray into the intelligence community. What did you work on? Did you work on Emmett or SIGINT Ground? Yeah, I worked on uh, the M22 broadcast system on the telemetry systems for the different ground stations. It was a lot of fun. And we, you know, when you put a bird in the sky, you only get one shot. So you do have to make sure that your, your code is more or less perfect, which was a big shift when I left NRO and really had to adapt to more agile methodologies and the like. NRO was a great place to work, and I'm really thankful for having been there. You know, I worked at the NRO for five years. Oh, I didn't. And that's how I came in as well. So I was living in Virginia and I got recruited by my master's degree professor Mm. to go work at the NRO. And I struggled at the NRO because I was working on ground systems and this was the transformation to a service oriented architecture. So that was like, they didn't know how to do a contract for service oriented architecture. (laughs) It was the first transformation to like a cloud or essentially hardware as a service. I couldn't deal because I'm just not into software that goes on a flying system, which, as you pointed out, is you only get one shot, so it has to be right. It's extremely slow. So you're at NRO. Do you actually work in the building there? Mostly for meetings. The company I worked for had a skiff in Arlington, so that's where we did most of our work. So you get your CI poly down there. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I passed it on the first time, which was I was told was rare. It was a little boutique company, which was, I really loved working at this company. And they um, they eventually sold to L3. I tried to make it work, but it just wasn't for me. That's when I became an independent contractor. And essentially, I was a Beltway bandit. And I worked at a lot of cool places, including DARPA, the Pentagon, the White House, some wireless startups. It was a great lifestyle. It was a lot of fun. And I was on a contract at INSCOM where I was building prototypes down in the IDC. And a couple of guys from NSA came down and saw one of the prototypes that I had built that was built on a voice engine. And they said, you know, that prototype should really belong up at NSA. Can you come up for a couple of weeks and install it for us? And that was in 2004. Apparently, I'm still installing it almost you know, <laughs> 20 years later. When you were a Beltway Bandit, how old were you when you decided to, you're a 1099 essentially at this point? Right. I was, I was basically a 1099 corp to corp. And so I was 26. What made you decide to just work for yourself? Like, I didn't even know that that was an option. How did you even know to do that and then take that risk? My then best friend, now brother-in-law, which is a whole separate story. (laughs) (laughs) He had been doing some independent consulting and he had told me about it. And he said, you know, with your clearance, you might even be able to do more things. My whole life, I've always been willing to take risk. And I'm a big believer that life starts at the edge. I had enough money saved up where I didn't have to work. 
for several months and it turned out to be a pretty lucrative option for me. So it worked out pretty well. And so you're 26. So this is about eight years of you working multiple with multiple different companies and multiple different opportunities. That's correct. Yep. Pretty much in 2004, I came up to NSA. My first project was a project called Reinhardt, which is a voice tipping tool. I personally thought it was a huge success. The scientists at the agency probably, you know, they would throw precision recall numbers at you and say, well, it doesn't have this or that. But I always looked at it from the perspective of mission impact, which it had a significant amount of. And so eventually the R group took over and funded it themselves and took the project away from us, which is fine. I felt like for me, I like to start things. I don't necessarily have to finish them. I think of myself as a zero to one kind of guy. And from there, I uh, joined a program called Green Dragon and started a project called Cineplex because we were supposed to evaluate all these commercial tools. And at the time, every repository at the agency was had its unique schema and it had its own UI. And every analyst had to know have accounts and know all those different UIs. I kind of did a very layman's approach to it where I said, you know, when I look across all these repositories, realistically, there's only maybe two dozen fields that analysts really care about, even though a particular repository might have 200 fields. There's only two dozen that they really care about. So let me just go get those and normalize them and enrich it and expose it to a variety of tools. So it basically enabled analysts to contact chain across different repositories, which was really hard to do back in the day. And so I was very proud of that project. We had a fantastic time working on it. it we were a small ragtag team and we were out of a group called SSG at the time before all the NSA 21 stuff. We were given the liberties to succeed, which was a lot of fun. And so I really give a lot of credit to my governance sponsors at the time that allowed for that. Are you still a 1099 at this point? I was a corp to corp at that point. I hired my first employee in 2008. So I was a company of two (laughs) and uh, we were corp to corp, but I started my independent contracting in 2000. And was it always called asymmetric? No, it was initially called Kanak Consulting, K-A-N-A-K. You named it after your mother? I did because my parents did not want me to do this. So I figured if I named the company after my mom, she would not be so against it. It kind of worked. But then we used to do a lot of work in the mock with the military guys. And they always used to say, man, you guys are like asymmetric warfare against the bad guys. You should call yourself asymmetric. And no one could ever pronounce our old name properly. So we, we changed our name to asymmetric in 2008. So the K in asymmetric is kind of an homage back to the kind of consulting that was the original name and we could get the domain name easily. Did you go from an LLC to an S corp? Were you always a S corp? Well, we were always an S corp. And then uh, I forget when we changed to a C corp, but yes, we, we started as started as an LLC S corp and then eventually migrated to a C corp. What made you decide to hire your first employee? I kept getting pulled into meetings with, VPs at SAIC and other companies. And they kept asking me when I was going to grow up. And uh, 
either start hiring people or join a large company and go down the leadership track. And I really didn't have the appetite for the latter. So I figured I would roll the dice and start hiring people that were like-minded and wanted to make a similar impact and thought maybe we could do more together. I think that was the right call. How did you decide to largely focus on the customer app at Fort Meade? Due to my experience on both Reinhardt and Cineplex, I had become quite intimate with the analyst community. I just fell in love with the agency's work. I think I truly do believe it's a privilege to work there. It's a microcosm of the world. It's got some of the most interesting problems you'll ever get to solve. I was kind of addicted in a lot of ways. It made a lot of sense for me to start the business there. How soon after you renamed your company Asymmetric that you picked a black sheet for your icon? I don't recall exactly when it happened, but when we first started Asymmetric, there was, frankly, there was a lot of pressure from our customers to organize our company as an 8A or a hub zone or something like that. My partner and I were very resistant to it and we would get chewed out. So you don't understand what you're doing. You got to really do this 8A thing. And I don't begrudge anybody for doing it. It just wasn't for us. It wasn't something that felt right for me to do. So we kind of adopted this black sheep persona. And to be perfectly frank, when we first started Asymmetric, I thought we would go out of business in about a year or two. I didn't think we would last as a company. Why? Because we were pretty counterculture. We you know, we've very much favored fixed price contracts. We would not play the some of the contract games with like the hub zone and the 8A. And we were okay with walking away from work. And so in the early days, I thought that was going to be our undoing. It turned out that that actually really emboldened us to be a very strong company. There are a lot of perverse incentives in government contracting, and we were going against them, and we were being told by everybody that you don't know what you're doing. And I'll admit that I still don't know what I'm doing, but you know, if I had to redo it, I'd probably still do it the same way. Was your first hire your partner? Was that No, it was an analyst that I used to work with, and she was phenomenal. She was somebody who told the customers what they had to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And uh, I love that about her. And literally, we walked around the big four two times. And that was my interview slash recruiting pitch to her. And she took a gamble and the rest was history. How did you find your partner? Mike was, he was a program manager at SAIC. When I moved from INSCOM to NSA, I was subcontracting to his division of SAIC. So mm-hmm. we immediately hit it off. We were both very mission-focused. Profit was secondary to us. And we we really saw eye-to-eye on what mattered. We didn't need to bring an army of mediocrity to a problem that we thought if we brought a handful of really talented people, that was going to be better. And that's kind of where the name obviously came from, Asymmetric. So I was initially his subcontractor, and then he left there to join me, and then we had we had a great relationship. What was the conversation like? Did you approach him? Did he approach you? So he approached me because he really wanted to be very mission-focused, and he thought that he and I could do it better together. And like I said, I was like, I'm going to give this a try, but 
I don't think this is going to last, but what's the harm in trying? So, uh, <laughs> but he had a lot more to lose. He was much more senior, right? Had a pretty steady job. Yeah, he was about 20 years older than I am. So in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, I think if you care about what you do and and you live a modest lifestyle like both of us do, uh, it was okay. We weren't going to starve. How did you guys split the company? 50-50. Yeah. I mean, he bought in. We went 50-50. Not 51, 49? No. I mean, that was the advice we were getting. Go 51, make it minority owned, all that sort of stuff. We didn't do that. Pretty shortly after we started giving equity to every employee, K-1s and everything. So by the end of it, Mike and I each probably independently owned about 35% and the employees owned about 30%. It was a significant chunk of the company. Wow. And you had planned to allocate that much from the get-go? No. Initially, it was about 20%. And then as we grew, we realized, oh, well, we have a real company on our hands. (laughs) And uh, we never diluted any employees. We only ever diluted mine and Mike's equity. So, And that was okay. I mean, we we felt very strongly that if employees are helping build something great that we owe them a part of that equity. We had no issue giving that away. So you started that right away? It was very early on. It was less than 10 employees when we started it. You were in business for 13 years? Yes. How did you feel that the starting the stock plan early made a difference? It's a mixed bag. I mean, there was an episode where we explored ESOPs, which realistically proved to be very complicated and bureaucratic to administer. Mike and I spent a lot of time trying to explain the value of equity to many employees. And there were definitely several who very much valued the equity, but many who thought it was worthless, partially because Mike and I said we we had no intention to sell the company. So a lot of people just said, well, this equity that you're giving me even though it's increasing in value every year, it's really not worth that much. But uh, I think in the end, it actually paid off quite nicely to a lot of people. When you prepared to sell, were you open with the company about it? How was that experience like? Because especially with everyone bought in as owners, right? You have so many owners. We had about 120 owners at the time. Yeah. It was an interesting journey. I mean, it was surreal. I mean, Literally this time last year, the idea of selling the company was not even an inkling in our mind. What we did realize is that Mike was, he was 20 years older than me. You know, there was talk about semi-retirement and, you know, what what his future was going to be be like. We were also crossing the five-year, 30 million per year average. So we were no longer going to be categorized as a as a small business and, and the free and open stuff we would have to bid against would be against all the bigs. So that was also a consideration. And so our initial go at it was exploring the opportunity to partner with private equity to buy other companies right. and create a platform with asymmetric being the anchor. We explored that initially, and there was there was definitely a lot of interest in us doing that. I think the reality was is that 
that's an incredible amount of work to integrate new companies and pursue a lot of work that you may not have pursued otherwise. It's no small feat. So then we started shifting our focus to, well, maybe we're not the buyer, but maybe we're the one who's being bought. And more or less out of the gate said we were not going to sell to strategic. We had no interest in that. It would not have fit the DNA of our company. Nothing against strategics. They play their role. But we really focused on mid-market platforms. And uh, Blue Halo quickly emerged as one of the initial companies that was a good match for us culturally, work-wise, in a number of ways. As we went through the vetting process, they emerged as the primary contender. And I definitely think it was the right choice. Was it hard emotionally? Definitely. I mean, asymmetric for better or for worse. I felt like its reputation and my my name were tied very closely together. I did personally struggle with my ego being in there. It really helped when I talked to my wife about when I explained to her, I was like, hey, there's this option on the table to sell the company. What would you think? You know, for us as a family and whatever. And I mean, she pretty squarely said, she's like, you're not any good at running a company. I think this is a great idea. So, so she made it, she she gave me a lot of comfort in going down that path and I'm kind of joking, but I do give her a lot of credit there. Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. Where did you have the confidence to always do your own thing and listen to your own voice, kind of consequences be damned? I think that is very unusual. And you seem to, it's something that people I think should grow into or do eventually grow into and wish they had done it sooner. But you seem to have done it at a very young age and been very, very comfortable with marching to your own beat. Where did that come about? I feel like it started when I was very young and being the son of immigrants in a, let's just say, a very southern part of the United States. I had to do a lot of things independently. Anytime somebody rang the door or rang the doorbell at our house, my parents would make me answer. If somebody called the house, I would have to answer and I would have to essentially be the interpreter between whoever came to the house or called and my parents. And my parents were very good about taking me and my sister to India every other year. And India is a very different place than the U.S. There's real poverty there. I mean, there's poverty, the kind of poverty that breeds more poverty. And there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of, there's a lot of wonderful things, of course. But, you know, success is not guaranteed just because you're the smartest or hardest working person there. You have to be able to read the room. You have to understand 
many different facets of your environment to succeed. And I saw that at a very young age. And I was never, I was never a straight A student. So I was kind of used to failure in a way, which was funny because in the Indian community growing up, all the other Indian kids did extremely well in school, were always valedictorians or whatnot. And I wasn't. But my parents loved me so much that they, even though they would tell me what to do and whatever, but whatever I did, they, they were okay with it. And I, I don't know, I just, I feel like I was just so lucky in that way. I felt like no matter what I would do, I would be okay because I had the love and support of my family. Well, I think there's also a desire to fit into a crowd. Like I am very outspoken. I'm like your analyst who frequently... I try as politely as possible to say what needs to be said in the bites that people want to hear it because sometimes people really aren't ready to hear what you have to say. And mm-hmm. especially as a contractor, you can get kicked out of room or fired or you're the one who's speaking up versus being the executor. That's not always welcome. I have struggled with that. Like that is my nature, right? That is who I am. I come in and I'm like, oh, this is what needs to be done. But I felt like I've dealt with a lot of repercussions of that. Have you felt that? I have been yelled at many a times by government employees about how it wasn't my place to care about the mission and and those things. And I kind of called BS on that, to be honest. I said, no, it's all of our job to care about the mission. And I have put myself out there in some very difficult situations while there were some short-term setbacks, in the long-term, people knew that I really cared about what I did. And when push came to shove and they really needed somebody to get something to done, they would call me. And yeah. even people who were my naysayers in other situations, when they got deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq, they called me. And I, was, I happily took the call, not to rub it in their face, but because it was an opportunity to do real mission work. I've worked on projects that end up being shelved, right? And there's nothing, I think, more exciting than actually seeing your engineering efforts being used in a real mission and providing real value. I describe it like an operating room when we were working in operations or supporting operations because engineering teams, I think, sometimes can get so removed from what their system does. To me, that's the original idea of DevSecOps was that you put engineers in operations so they can see how their system's actually working. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I used to do on all the projects that I've managed was I would set up a high side phone number as the help desk number for the system. And I would set it up that it would ring on every engineer's desk. (laughs) So it became kind of a badge of honor to be able to be the first one to pick up the phone And, you know, when we worked on Grapevine, it was a very regular thing for one of the developers to pick up the phone, be talking to the analyst, you know, they would describe a problem or a bug. They would, while the person was on the phone, fix the bug, do a hot deploy, ask them to refresh their browser and it'd be fixed. And the amount of purpose and satisfaction that the engineer would get out of being able to do that for somebody who was doing real mission was... You really can't put that in salary terms or bonuses or anything like that. They they felt a lot of pride in doing that. And so much of what 
I've managed, I've tried to reduce the barriers or eliminate the barriers between the engineers and the end user because it's critical. Yeah, I mean, left to their own devices, there are a lot of your requirements, documents, and meetings, and you know, all kinds of ways to separate the engineers from the mission. And I feel like it's very important to remove those obstacles to be successful. I had heard of Grapevine. I was working on teaching product management and the value of product management inside the agency. And Grapevine was heralded as this amazing example of a product. One of the things that was special about Grapevine is that you made it very fun. There were a lot of Easter eggs. How did that come about that fun and delight was built into the product? When we first made the initial prototype, there was no guarantee that we were going to become a program of record or anything like that. But there was definitely a very loud user community that wanted to keep Grapevine. And so... April Fool's is a big holiday in my family. We pull lots of pranks on each other. So what we did on the first April Fool's that Grapevine was in existence is that when you logged in, there was a pop-up message saying, thank you for using Grapevine. Due to lack of user engagement, uh, this is going to be the last day that Grapevine's in existence. If you care, you can email your management. And the user community lost their minds. (laughs) And it probably secured our future in a lot of ways. But again, it was about taking a risk. And we used to have a lot of fun. My favorite April Fool's Day joke on Grapevine was that we said, hey, we have this new feature where you can talk to the browser and we will type your report for you. And if you have any technical problems, here's like a number you can call. And there were people who like, we were trying the speech-to-text thing on Grapevine for hours, just not working. And they were like so upset. And we're like, it's an April Fool's Day joke. <laughs> and yeah, of course, we got in a little bit of trouble here and there. But uh, <laughs> it, was, it was so much Legends. Fun. That's what makes legends. Well, one of my claims to fame is that I'm, I think I'm probably the only contractor that has released an official egram. It was supposed to be on the test system, but one of our other engineers had it hooked up to the live system. So when I released the report in the test system, the subject line was Go Redskins. And it got (laughs) released as an official serialized report from the agency. And (laughs) I mean, and then, you know- I mean, it's offensive, right? To start with. It is, for sure. But every few years, they'll do a bulk recall and that report will come through again. And I'll get a call of like, why did you release this report? And I'm like, it was, so an, it was a test thing. And I'm kind of proud about it, but it was kind of embarrassing too. Your title was CTO, but I assume you still had to do a lot in running the business. Mm-hmm. How did you balance as your company grew, not being the engineer engaged on a team as a core portion of your job? I've always looked at myself as a problem solver. and. I would always prided myself in being able to take a step back and looking at the larger problem. I feel like I learned pretty early in my career that it's often more important what you don't do than what you do do. Because I would see very talented engineering teams go build something very sophisticated that the customer didn't want. And they would spend millions of dollars doing that. And so 
that was my value proposition. I would I would never claim that I was the best software engineer or anything like that. But I felt like what I was good at was understanding the big picture and then focusing the talent to address that big picture. So as far as running the company was concerned, that was just another stage of that for me is that I knew for me to solve the mission, I had to have the best talent. And to have the best talent, I had to have the best benefits, I had the best compensation, I had to have good security, I had to have all those things to have the right people to do the job. So I viewed that more holistically. I think even today, if you go on our company's J signout page, my title is not CTO, it's janitor, because I felt like I would do anything and everything. I mean, every night before I leave the office, I walk through the entire office, I pick up trash and recycling and clean up the office every night, tidy up the conference rooms so that uh, the next morning people come into a fresh professional office. And there's no ego there. I mean, I, I'm happy to do it. You got to do everything, I think. Before Asymmetric sold, it was, you had a pretty diverse customer set. How did that come about? By the time we sold, we were about 45% at NSA, 45% at the agency across the river that we don't like to say the name of, and uh, about 10% in commercial healthcare. That was a great mix, to be honest, because a lot of our CIA work was stuff that had transitioned from NSA. And we were very fortunate to, to get those contracts over there because of, that, of the work that we did over at Fort Meade. And then the healthcare stuff, it kind of started off with a former project manager of mine who used to be at DARPA and then went to a hospital and then called us in to help them. And that really blossomed in the last couple of years where now we're working on awesome projects like the cancer data aggregator at National Cancer Institute, which is phenomenal. And it's been really nice for us because the healthcare business has allowed us to do a number of things. It's allowed us to bring in extremely talented folks who may not have had a clearance and get cleared. But especially during the pandemic, it also has allowed certain people who were cleared, but for logistical need reasons, needed to have better, flexible work from home options, work on healthcare so that they didn't have to leave us to do what they needed for the family. So I love our healthcare work. I love our CIA work. I mean, I, I love everything that we do. I mean, I'm a little biased, of course. But yeah, we had a very great mix of prime contracts across all three. How old are you when you meet your wife? We met in 2000, probably 2007. And then we started dating in 2009. And we got married in 2012. And we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary earlier this, this year. What do you think has made your marriage successful so far with, you have a pretty intense job. I mean, you're staying late and cleaning up, taking out the trash. How do you be a good husband and a good father while you're doing this super intense job? It's a lot of things. I mean, I think humor plays a big role. Um, She's the funny one? Uh, she would tell you that for sure. Um, but I don't think she, my dad jokes land. Uh, but, uh, coming from a place of trust and noble intent is important. But I think also just some simple logistics. You know, I'm more the morning parent and she's more the evening parent. Did you put any rules or what did you learn over time of how to still 
give yourself the renewal energy that you needed to keep going and then also to be a good and involved father. From an energy perspective, I'm I'm kind of an extrovert. So I got a lot of energy from working and interacting with people. And it was, I loved that part. I think as far as giving time to the family, there were definitely times that it was difficult during proposals and things like that. But particularly for my son, I tried to explain to him the value of what we did, why it was important to protect our country, why it was important to help people who had bad health or whatever, make sure that he realized it wasn't about making money, that it was about serving a higher purpose. I'm sure there were (laughs) probably other fathers and husbands that probably spend more time with their family. And I think that was a sacrifice that you do make as a business owner. That's one of the things that I hope as we move forward, that that's something that I can kind of recalibrate for myself. And how old are your children? We have one son who's eight. He's super cute and naughty and a lot of fun and uh, you know drives you crazy all at the same time. I am in the thick of it. What advice would you give me? You have to stick to your core values. I think there's a lot of free advice out there that says, you know, follow this this recipe or whatever and following other people's recipes doesn't quite work. I think we as business owners we're more like chefs than we are bakers and we have to improvise and maybe the ingredients change on us and we always just have to make it work. And so I feel like there's a lot of advice out there that you have to make these five-year plans and 10-year plans and stick to these plans. And the reality is that's almost a fool's errand in many ways. I would advise you to think about how do you make your company anti-fragile? By anti-fragile, what I mean is as your company gets stressed, that the company becomes stronger. Like weightlifting, right? You're tearing the muscle yeah. to rebuild it. Exactly. Structure. Weightlifting, your immune system, different financial systems. These are all anti-fragile systems. And agile software teams are, if you run them properly, are anti-fragile. As they get stressed by the customer or the mission, they learn how to adapt and address those problems and incorporate it into its CICD pipeline or whatever it might be in that case. And they become stronger. And I think at the end of the day, if you're focused on the mission that you care about, part of that is winning prime contracts, obviously, because as a subcontractor, you're always going to be limited on what your impact can be. And so at some point you want to be a prime. But when you when you do become a prime, the thing that you need to understand is that As a subcontractor, you had the luxury of saying no. As a prime, you don't have that luxury anymore. So you're going to have to say yes to some things that you may not have done before, but that's where partnerships and relationships with other companies can help fill those gaps where it's like, hey, they're going to throw money on your prime contract. You don't really want to do this, but there's a company that you're friendly with that will be willing to take that for you. I think your core company, you got to keep focused on what you care about. So if that's cybersecurity or OSINT or you know whatever it might be, then stick to that and be the best in the world at that. And then you'll be rewarded for it, I think. What book or books have you read that have really impacted you either personally or professionally? There are many. I would say Small Giants is one that is definitely a good one. Radical Candor, Zero to One. 
Good to Great by Jim Collins, Think Again by Adam Grant. I think anything by Jim Collins is really good. Simon Sinek is really good. Zero to One is talking about creating something that's never been there before. And it gives this example of Chinese restaurants or nail salons where you're in a market that's crowded. His example is don't be in that market to start with. Like, Don't do something that's already crowded. What was your takeaway from that book? My takeaway was there was that the skills that you need to start something are different than the skills you need to scale something. And if you want to go from zero to one and then also be the same person who takes the company from one to 10, you need to necessarily learn new skills. For me, part of that was we brought in business consultants that taught us about things like pipelines and other types of business processes that we didn't have when we were basically a mom and pop shop. And so it was kind of a wake up call that I had to learn new skills if I wanted the company to continue to be successful, that I couldn't just get it off the ground. It would stagnate if I didn't evolve myself as an executive. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? One of the things that I started a couple of years ago that I kind of wish I had started earlier was having an executive coach. The value to me for having an executive coach was somebody that did not have a financial interest in my company, but I could be completely honest with about anything and everything. Executives and companies, it's, it's often a very lonely place to be. Having that coach or having those groups that you can join where you can share some of those trials and tribulations of our position is both very helpful and therapeutic. And uh, I would recommend people consider that as an option, like finding a mentor that is not a vested interest in their company, but is somebody who just listen and provide raw advice. How did you find your coach? I interviewed a number of potential coaches. It is kind of a matchmaking, to be honest. And so I probably interviewed five or six executive coaches, you know, and I ended up using this group called Vistage. That's a kind of a nationwide group of executive coaches. And I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, you suggested I join it. I finally found a good match and I'm starting in June. I feel that I need to hear from other people more consistently. And I'm interested in the fact that they have different industries and expertises as well. Before we go, tell us something about yourself that might surprise others. In college at UVA, I was the three-point intramural champion. For basketball? For basketball, yes. So people who see me now can't imagine me on a basketball court. I was actually pretty a pretty decent shot back in the day. Too bad you couldn't put a basketball court in your parking lot at the office. No, no, no. But I did go to the 2019 Final Four when UVA won the championship, and that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I just love the quick reaction, the interactiveness of the offense and defense and the skill required to play. I I love the game. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.